0: I'm Dave Tussing and you're listening to George Fox talks leadership. Hey there, Nishant. Really good to see you today. Good morning. Thank, Thank you, you for joining us. Um, I'm excited about this, and I know you are too. We've got a lot um, of things to talk about today that are um, near and dear to our hearts, and um, we've been fortunate enough to be able to find ways that we can um, work on these things in our professional lives, despite the fact, you know, not everybody gets to work on things that they're passionate about. You and I have gotten to, which I'm really excited about. So maybe we can do a quick intro. You and I have known each other for about seven years. You were just saying that, and uh, time does fly, huh? (laughs) Um, We met at a place that um, we both worked at previously. We're in different places now and lots of um, time has gone by. But, you know, today we're just going to be talking about general topics of the nature of change and digital disruption and kind of, you know, ethics and values, you know, how that weaves into all of it. But, you know, maybe you can just tell tell others um, a little about what you do because you're really in the epicenter of all those things. And so talk a little about what you're doing today. And uh, also, I know you've written a book recently that kind of is, is relevant to this topic. So I'd love to hear a little about that.
1: Thank you, David. So for the audience, my name is Nishant Bajaria. I head a privacy engineering program at a company called Uber. might have heard about us. I'm in my personal capacity out here today. And I've known David for a long time, going back seven years. And I've led programs that deal with security, privacy, trust, and safety in one way or the other, going back the last decade or so. And I, to David's point, I'm enjoying my work in this space because engineering can be very exciting, very exhilarating when you get capabilities out the door for customers to use, drive engagement, create revenue, because at the end of the day, creativity and capitalism put together make our society work on an ongoing basis. What is especially interesting about the work David and I do is it helps us go into sort of the ethics and the trust aspect of it and to show our colleagues at our respective jobs that it is possible to do the right thing in a way that is commercially lucrative. Like It doesn't have to be an either-or proposition. This dichotomy, this false choice we often subscribe to as a society, society as a society where you can either do the right thing or make money is not actually valid. And I think our careers stand evidence of that. So yes, I've written a book on this topic. The book is called Data Privacy, a run book for engineers. It's on Amazon. If you put my first name and last name, which pretty much is as about unique as you can get given the (laughs) private implications of that. Uh, That is the only listing that shows up on Amazon, Walmart, any website. So, and every penny I make from that goes towards elephant rescue, three causes that I support in. So I would love to talk more about that. And I think what is especially unique just to make the point for David is that for a lot of people, you often look at your career as sort of what could have been, which is you do one thing, but somehow your job, struggles to capture the fullness of your personality and the fullness of your idealism. And we are extremely fortunate to sort of be able to do that. And as a leader, as a manager, as an executive, I try to make sure that I create those opportunities for my engineers and other people who report into me, because frankly, to go back to the earlier point I made, it keeps them happy. It keeps them satisfied. It keeps them from leaving the company. So it's good business for me and it's good for our customers as well. So throughout this conversation, I'll keep coming back to this theme where the right thing and the smart thing are the same thing.
0: Yeah. Awesome. That's that's wonderful. And um, I agree with all that. Maybe, um, you know, in a, in a nutshell, maybe just talk a little about more what ethics and values mean, particularly in this world of technology and innovation. And, you know, in the past, I think people kind of, to your point, had excluded those, perhaps. Let's mm-hmm. just go make stuff. Um, doesn't matter what it is. Let's disrupt, you know, the world the way things have always been. And along the way, we found, oof, some unintended consequences. So, you know, talk talk about ethics and values and just what that means in this world of tech and innovation.
1: And that is such a great uh, point, David. So I I'll take you guys back to 2003, all of you, sorry, not just guys, I'm assuming there's a lot more people listening than just you and me. So in 2003, after I finished my undergrad, my dad came to visit me from Mumbai and we went to New York just to sort of celebrate my graduation. And we got down from those nice double-decker buses at Times Square, and I looked at the ticker, and I saw all these amazing names, Intel, Microsoft. And those companies would not typically, at the time, go to the Midwest to hire, Where I got my undergrad from. So I told my dad, one day I'll work for a company that's on the NASDAQ ticker. And even a cursory look at my resume will show that I've done that. But it's, it's kind of weird, because when I've actually gotten those names on my resume, we're in the middle of this heavy tech lash, where... When Bernie Sanders and Steve Bannon both agree that big tech is bad, that's a problem. Like when you've unified those two, it's a moment in our history. So I think ethics is extremely important because I feel like when big tech makes changes to people's lives, when we disrupt people's lives, when the waves of change that we unleash wipe away the lines of community and clan, they change people's lives in a way that we don't fully appreciate. When I was in the debate team at Truman State like almost two decades ago, we used to drive through these small Midwestern towns with shuttered storefronts, abandoned town squares. But the only jobs in a lot of those communities were at the hotel or the gas station. That's a problem. When the tech industry creates a lot of wealth without creating a lot of work, that's an ethical problem. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, we exist to serve society, not the other way around. So I, I kind of feel like we are now increasingly talking about how do we build products that are more ethical? How do we handle data correctly? How do we build transparency in as part of our culture, how do we make sure that we create jobs for people without the hands-on tech coding skills that we need on day one? That's an important conversation to have because remember, these people buy our products. Like when we talk about ethics, we're not doing anybody any favors here. We're not becoming magnanimous. We are essentially serving the same communities that have purchased our products, pumped up our stock prices, although not, not so much lately with the stock market, but in general, it is important for us to give back to the community because without that community, There will not be anybody out there to buy our products in the long run. So I think ethics are not just the right thing to do. They are. They're an important thing for us to do as part of our overall location in this macroeconomic society.
0: Mm -hmm. And and kind of a few things you said there that really resonate. You're thinking about like the total ultimate outcome of whatever you're doing, not Mm -hmm. just you know, like a lot of companies or people would, let's, what, how, what, how can we make the most money? (laughs) Um, What can we do to quickly get out there and take a market share for somebody, but they're not really thinking about the total impact and the broader societal impact. So I I like what you're talking about and you're correct for sure. And you live this, you know, every day, there is a shift starting to occur. And so maybe, you know, talk about a few examples if you can, um, or would like to where people or companies forgot to consider these ethics and values as they were making these um, decisions to create new things. So kind of like what happened, you know, and, and then why are people now saying, huh, maybe we should change a little bit.
1: Yeah. So I was talking to my mom about this a couple of weeks ago when I was in Mumbai at the time, and she was very happy that I wrote this book and we did this little thing on LinkedIn where she held the book. She's like, let me tell the world how I educated you. And this book came about. So as an adjunct to that conversation, we talked about how, tech doesn't hire for diversity as much as we should. So if you look at the macroeconomic figures, women are amazing participants in civic life when it comes to spending money, when it comes to creating new products, when it comes to using products, when it comes to having two careers, one at home, one outside. We have evidence going back the last three or four decades as to how much they have actually been contributing, not just to our GDP, but to our MDP, that is our gross domestic product and our moral domestic product. And yet, when you look at tech hiring, We want to close Rex as soon as possible, which means hiring our buddies who have for too long been men. And how is it fair that the consumers of our products don't find representation in the construction of those products? Hmm. So for the longest time, big tech has hired too many men and our teams, our products, our conversation, our discourse, our culture has been too women unfriendly. So I feel like the Me Too movement is about something much larger than just treating people with respect. It's about hiring women. It's about giving them opportunities, it's about giving them visibility, it's about building that bench rather than complaining about, oh my goodness, we can't find enough women. So I feel like that is one very direct example. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm speaking on behalf of myself, but let me give you a specific example. So three or four years ago, Uber, we didn't have the best reputation in this space. And today for my team, the person who heads my analytics organization is a woman. The person who heads the mergers and acquisitions privacy validation team is a woman. So we, when you do the right thing from an ethical perspective by giving them the training, the support, the opportunities, it leads to better programs, it leads to more redundancy, it leads to better verification, it leads to better relationships, it leads to a better work culture, mm-hmm. and more importantly, in the end of it, it leads to a better brand reputation. So right. there is a clear cut example right here about the right ethics and the right company policy being essentially the same thing.
0: Right. Now, a few things you mentioned in there that I think are are how some places and people have got into this situation in the past is like, want to just go fast, um, unconscious bias, or perhaps a conscious bias um, one way or the other. And, um, you know, not really understanding a broader set of things, um, you know, just trying to solve a very granular problem versus thinking about a bigger problem. And, and there's trade-offs to that. So maybe, you know, talk about some of those trade-offs you know, when and where it does make sense to go fast. But to your point, there are ways you can um, still still hold those ethics and values true and, and be mindful of those biases that we might have and overcome them. So maybe talk a little about how how, how you go about that.
1: Definitely. So let me start with an example. So I tend to do a lot of these talks and I feel people relate better to me when I give them an example because it humanizes the example. So let me start with one. So a few years ago, I was at um, an event at Carnegie Mellon University. So I love going there because I tried to apply when it was time to go to grad school and I applied three times, I couldn't get in. So anytime they have me over as a guest to do some hiring, I take the opportunity with everything I've got and then some. So I gave them visibility to sort of a product my team was building at the time to say, We are all about transparency and trust. We want the customers to understand what data we have about you, how we use it. And we want that to be very mutual and go back and forth. We are not trying to hide anything. So I was kind of on my moral high horse saying, look how awesome my team is. Look how beautiful our dashboards are. And a lot of those engineers were getting their resumes ready. So they were being very polite. Obviously, you're not going to piss somebody off when they work for a major company that could give you a job. So it was all... I was enjoying myself, but there was also a sort of contrived nature to the conversation. And I asked somebody, do do you have any questions? And a woman sitting in the far back raised her hand and I'm like, yes. And she's like, aren't you concerned that the sheer volume of data would intimidate some people? Like, she's like, I could talk about my dad or my mom who would be like, oh my goodness, this is all very overwhelming. I cannot possibly make an intelligent choice about what to say yes to and what to say no to. And... I'm not often quiet for 15 seconds when I'm speaking before an audience. In fact, I'm not quiet for 15 (laughs) seconds at any point unless I'm awake, unless I'm sleeping. And I didn't know what to do with that question because that was such an amazing question. So I was all about, Mm -hmm. here's all these dashboards, here's all this data. And I didn't even account for the fact that I was building something for, I would say a very plugged in audience but not for an audience that was just getting used to technology for the first time. So we have subconscious biases when it comes to ableism. Like we only build stuff for people like us. Right. In Silicon Valley, most of my friends are in tech. Their friends, their spouses are in tech, their kids are in spe- are in tech. Their parents are in tech. So we live in a bit of a bubble which creates this echo chamber. And I think one of the biggest challenges, David, we face as a country, as a community, as a world is. We love affirmation and affirmation comes very easily from people who are like us. And so I went back home that day and I said, I told my team, let's come up with something that's a smaller version of this dashboard. That's a little more interactive that allows people to pick and choose how much data we throw at them. And that led to a much better program because that team, that product now speaks to a much bigger audience that leads to better choices that leads to better trust and relationships, which means those users now use those products in a way that is much more informed, rather than feeling like we're kind of snowing them with a ton of data. So right. my larger response to your question is, let's listen to people who are not like us. We may not agree, we may not speak the same language or the same use the same devices, but the tune we create will be melodious to you and me both. So right. it's in the interest of that larger alignment that I'm going for here.
0: And and that's really, I mean, in innovation processes, how newer and bigger ideas can come that nobody could come up with on their own. I mean, those the diversity of perspectives is the only way you get something completely new that hasn't existed before in some cases. So that's that's really interesting. Maybe slight shift on that. Um, companies. You know, business models sometimes are problematic or or not. And in this space of innovation, um, a lot of companies have have gone and done things, and come up with creative ways to fund their business model. Um, and so now we're learning a lot over you know the last few years. Oh, there are some downsides to some of this. Maybe talk about business models. And if, if a company is going to think of a new one, what they should do and think about up front, or if it's a company that's been doing things a certain way for a little while, what might they be able to do to shift um, so that they could have, you know, a better impact um, versus being reliant on one way of working that maybe has some downsides that aren't great.
1: Yeah. So another example time. So going back a decade plus, I was working for a startup in downtown Portland and we were trying to recruit somebody onto our team. And this person was an Intel veteran They had spent a lot of time in the industry. So they kind of knew what they were doing. Uh, This was a different kind of interview because typically we were hiring all these really young engineers. Frankly, we didn't have much money. So we were always looking for people who didn't have a whole lot of other experience. So when we had this person come on board for the interview, I was supposed to make the sales call, which is this person was getting good reviews and we wanted to hire them. And my job was to really close the deal, so to speak. And I (laughs) tend to get that role a lot even now. Unfortunately, at the time, I didn't quite have the perspective and the ethical maturity that I should have had as a, as a person. So my sales pitch was based on the following. We work long hours, we work evenings, we work weekends, and how much time you put in is an indication of how much you care about the product. That was really the sum total of my <laughs>
0: Yeah,
1: I actually said those things word for word as well. I have that note written in front of me. And to my great surprise, this person passed. I'm like, how could you possibly say no to us? We are, we are so awesome. We work all the time. And I think a lot of companies have gotten used to this idea that you being available in the office all the time, you being responsive to messages all the time is critical. Otherwise somehow your dedication is insufficient. And I think that is not just a company value in a lot of cases. That is something that people have internalized as a habit. Mm. And frankly, time has taught me and a lot of us that time is finite. As I like to say, tomorrow is full of promises, but tomorrow itself is not promised. Right. And the ability to live a fuller life where you work hard, but then disconnect in the evening, where you learn a lot from your job and use that learning to do other things that are outside of the job that are beneficial to society. The ability to be there for your family and support people without expectation of reward and return. The ability to create friendships and relationships that are nothing to do with your job. These things make for a fuller, a more purpose-driven life. And I think all of that maturity All of that ethical Mm. learning makes you a better worker and a better person. So Mm -hmm. I feel like this change in business model that you talk about, David, is about a change in approach to life. And I feel like when we build products with that mindset, it makes for better products because those products will speak to a much better, a much bigger section of society, leading to better margins, better customer retention, and better employee morale. So I feel like the shift in business model Mm. speaks to this idea that ubiquitous work doesn't mean good work all the time. And I think that's a change we're going through. Mm -hmm. And I hope that as we go through this great resignation, this great reshuffle, and maybe a recession, we take a fuller measure of how we have been living. Because, you know, we were living one life in February 2020 before COVID hit. And one day, someday, I promise you, this crisis will end and we will be at the other side of COVID. But when we come to that other side, the old life we live is not going to be waiting for us. Mm -hmm. You cannot go back home again. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to build a new home. Let's build a better home. That's my message.
0: No, that's great. I think um, things I ask myself and others, you know, I encourage them to ask themselves kind of a ba- basic daily question. What am I doing and why am I doing it? <laughs> and if I can't answer those, that's a good place to start. And then do I do I like what I'm doing? Do I like where I'm doing it? Do I like, you know, who who is around me? Um, those are all good, good questions that we can ask ourselves. And people really are asking themselves a lot okay. more today. And so then that can actually start to affect um Uh, Perhaps a company even that's been established for a while, perhaps what their business model is. People don't want to be associated with that at some point and they might have a hard time, you know, finding the right talent or they might have a hard time, you know, with continuing to sell a product they would have sold in the past because kind of the demand for it has decreased. So maybe, you know, talk about a little more what you're seeing in that sort of space and maybe ways that companies can position themselves to um, capitalize on this trend. I don't think it's going
1: away. (laughs) No, no, the the trend isn't going away. I feel like companies have a great opportunity here to fix multiple problems all at once. So I think you talked about something very well about people are making choices when it comes to where they work. And I will caveat my answer by saying that these changes are not baked in the cake right now because we're going through this amazing societal change. Like if we have a recession, do people step back a little bit and make more existential decisions? So... It's like we are writing our wisdom on the seashore as Mm -hmm. the tides of change keep rolling (laughs) in. But I I do appreciate the sentient point, which is how do we use this moment to make constructive change? Because you never want to miss the opportunity to fix something while you are in crisis. And we are in crisis as a world right now. I would say what companies should do is think about training and upskilling their engineers. Like When I began my career in the middle of grad school in the early parts of the first decade of the century, training was a real thing where you spent the first week, two weeks, maybe even three weeks learning stuff without having real responsibility. And now the phrase, throw you in the deep end of the pool, hit the ground running. I'm sure there are other cliches. We could probably play a game of cliches and probably be here until 6 p.m. at least. Uh, What that meant is this burden of acclimating yourself to the job and producing value got shifted from the employer completely to the employee, when in fact, it should be a shared responsibility. Mm -hmm. How do you train people? How do you give them the support where they feel wanted and validated? How do you make sure that people have enough time to care for their family? How do you make sure that people can go and pick up their kids and drop them off? I feel like that burden has been shifted completely from employer to employee. And I feel like what companies can say is, this is not part of your benefits. This is part of your life. We will be there to support you. Uh, Not making people feel guilty if they have to care for an elderly relative. Like when I was in Mumbai the last time, I saw how much the tentacles of time have encircled my dad. Hmm and this is hard to talk about because you are talking about a topic like mortality which nobody wants to face mm-hmm. because let's face it we as human beings think that summers are perennial right. although in oregon they hardly exist but that's <laughs> a different story um, but i feel like what companies can do is tell employees that we want to make sure that you have enough time to support your families and grow your skills and that is something that is part of your job like mm-hmm. that is not something that you have to find time to do separately over and above your job so in other words shipping good code just as important as finding time to take care of that elderly parent that lives across town. Mm -hmm. And when companies do that, they will find that keeping their employees happy means less attrition, Mm -hmm. less time spent looking for somebody else in return. Because when you lose an employee, and this is a little secret, I hope my team isn't listening right now, but I secretly wake up in fear every single day wondering, oh my goodness, what if person XYZ quits? Because it's going to be hard to find somebody to replace them. Right. And so giving people the time to take care of their family and giving people more resources to train themselves means that they can do a better job while they are here while reducing greatly the possibility that they'll go to another company. And, and, you know, the reason I say this, David, is because when people quit company A to go to company B, what they're really doing is hoping that this new company respects them more. Right. But fundamentally, given how much everybody is jumping around these days, there is no magical company that does these things right. So we collectively need to do a much better job so as to make sure all of us don't feed off of each other's seed corn right now. Mm-hmm. That's one message mm-hmm. I have.
0: No, that's a good one. And some of what you've been talking about, kind of bottom-up change, driving change, from the you know the employees, um, companies then have to start to change too. Um, we are starting to see some companies from kind of their top down start to make some shifts again, um, intentionally to create this pretty different way of working um, than than in the past. Um, so maybe talk a little about what you're seeing in. in uh, your spheres of of influence or just places that you work where there's more top-down focus on this. And maybe even, you know, from the board, and in a minute we can talk about regulation perhaps, um, just there's so much changing in this place. Is it going um, to require some external forces to to drive the change or should it, you know, um, be just driven between that relationship between employee and employer?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, there's a saying that culture eats, You know, I would say your values and your culture (laughs) needs some kind of company slogan for breakfast, and I feel like it's important to live up to that. And I think the choice often is: does it have to be bottom up or top down? But uh, I think it's got to be both. To your point, change is bottom up and top down because without the bottom up support, you don't have engagement, you don't have participation. But without the top down validation of that, you don't have any kind of durable value to the change. So you need a bit of both. And I think what happens is. Unless you have sort of the bottom up culture, things don't really start Mm -hmm. because the conversation happens from the bottom up. So, for example, how do we build products that are more accessible? How do we make sure, as an example, that we hire boot campers as well? There is often this prejudice in big companies Mm -hmm. that you need to have worked for XYZ company at our scale or PQR company who does the same sorts of things we do. Unless you do that. We're not going to be able to hire you. And there is a lot of prejudice in that expectation because you have automatically counted out people who didn't get their start at the same company or people who don't have networking capabilities or people who were raised in small towns where maybe that internet connectivity wasn't that great. Like these are real things yep. that hold people back, right? So the bottom up change here means that you cast your net wide. Like in my job, for example, I love to hire boot campers because these are people that may not have a CS degree. These are people that don't have that big puffy resume and those big connections. Mm -hmm. But what they do have is this amazing willpower to swim upstream. They have this ability to build their skills while maybe they were doing a different job. And they will learn much faster. And for for all intents and purposes, they will come in, really hit the ground running because they have been running before you gave them the ground to run on. Mm -hmm. So this is one example where bottom-up really helps. And then when it comes to top-down, it basically means that you offer these people bigger pay bumps. Maybe they come in at a lower level because they don't have that parity and you have to worry about fairness and equity as well. Because if you work for... A really major tech company for four years, and you have hands on skills ready to go. I may not be able to pay a boot camper what I pay you right now. That creates other complications. But what I'm looking for top down support is making sure that after the first three, six, nine months, once these boot campers have shown that they can do the job, let's bump up their pay to make sure that there is pay equity and we reward them as well. So there are complicated questions about pay equity, access promotion, opportunity. But when you have bottom-up happening, you provide the opportunity. When you have top-down, you can create equity. So I feel like having these movements happen at the same time in the same company in complete collaboration or an ongoing basis means that you can achieve multiple goals at once. Now, this is important for us, David, as leaders to talk about is because we have to create a culture that fosters these changes. Like I may not be able to have every single hiring decision happen correctly, there will be opportunities missed and there will be mistakes made. But I feel like creating that culture is important because without that, the bottom up may not happen. The top down may not happen. And these conversations may not really produce the benefits we are looking for. Because at the end of the day, we have to build a better society here. That's what's happening here. We are going through the most tumultuous change in our society since I think the 1960s. And in the 1960s, we had sort of an ethical end game. We wanted to create equity. Mm -hmm. That was sort of that game. All those rallies that Eugene McCarthy, Bobby Kennedy talked about Dr. King talked about, there was an end game to it. And my worry right now is that we don't have a decided end game because we have so many societal silos. Mm. So I think building this culture in the tech industry is a pretty critical way because frankly, I don't know of very many other organizations outside of tech that have the scale that we do. And with that comes responsibility right. to build a culture.
0: Right, that's a good point. I, I, playing off something you said about kind of that end game, um, I think for a while at least, when really there was a lot of tech innovation, you know, in the two thousands, early twenty tens, I don't think that it felt like there was much of an end game besides just see what we can do. You know, make money, see what we can do. I mean, there were everybody had their own flair on kind of what their their big strategy was, but I think it it was pretty disconnected from the societal implications it was just like create new create new and Mm -hmm. so what you're talking about is is really interesting and now it's kind of coming back yeah what are the societal implications and so that's where boards are talking with senior leadership that's creating some of that top-down change and that's also you know where regulators in different parts of the world are starting to talk and really maybe drive some of that change so maybe you can just talk about those um, aspects of change driving for a minute and kind of how we how we got to this moment where there's a lot of board activity on these topics and regulators circling around.
1: Absolutely. And I think uh, people need to understand that regulation is downstream from culture. So yeah. any positive constructive change will come because of regulation. But that won't be the first thing that brings you there. Regulation is a reflection of public sentiment. And right. like all the challenges yeah. you've talked about, David, whether it was mistakes, big tobacco made in the 1990s, yep. big finance made in the 2010s, and big tech has made since. All of these mistakes have been with us for a long time. Right. But it's only when the culture and the conversation and society is asking for more, it's only when that happens that regulation follows. So I think people who expect regulation to bail us out will be disappointed because I frankly feel (laughs) any entity that is big enough to dictate change scares me, whether it's big government or big business. That's point number one. Uh, The the second thing I would say is that uh, the board of directors is paying attention across the board, no pun intended. (laughs) Because they now realize that there is a cost to these things. Mm -hmm. And when we as a tech industry made a ton of money, we did it because we gave engineers a ton of autonomy. We gave them a separate tech stack, a very low process model that will help them build amazing stuff. The second thing was all these consumers also expect fast moving products like customers, for example, expect top notch security at the back end. But they also want very low latency. And there is often tension between those Mm -hmm. expectations. It's like Abraham Lincoln said, anybody who has a problem with government should spend five minutes with the water. So for all <laughs> the mistakes, we as big tech make, the consumer is no picnic either. That's number two. And the third thing is frankly, nobody was asking too many questions because we were building these products. Customers were engaging in big right. numbers, right. advertising and investment revenue flowed in. So those three ideas, lots of products, lots of engagement and a lot of money collectively meant nobody was asking the tough questions. Now what is happening is we are seeing these tough problems rise and these problems defy easy solutioning. Mm -hmm. Like nobody can move one lever and fix these problems. Frankly, these problems have multiple sources, multiple reasons, and multiple decisions that went into it. So what the boards are now realizing is that they will have to pay attention to culture, to productivity, to language, Mm -hmm. to hiring, to investments mm-hmm. to messaging all at once. Mm-hmm. And frankly, all of these controversies are coming to a head because everybody wants to be seen as they're doing something. All of us have the, we walk around with my dog, my wife and I every evening, and there are these beautiful signs outside people's house, houses paying homage to diversity and to inclusivity. And I think that's fantastic that people are taking that message seriously, but what do you do about it? Right. What different decisions will you make? How will you hire? How will you behave differently? Right. And I feel like The board of directors are now realizing that they have to think about these things and give people specific starting points. Because I think, David, once people have a specific starting point, once they see how to do these things, it gets easier. But it's the start that is hard. It's like, I hate to use this example right after we prayed, but it's like, (laughs) you know, when alcoholics have to stop their addiction, there is a moment when you have to put the bottle down. Not that I'm speaking from experience here, but you have to put the bottle down and take inventory of what you've done to your body. Right with all of that poisonous consumption and that moment of realization is what scares people. Mm -hmm. Once you get past that point, you will make better choices and you will live a better life. But it's that moment when you have to take stock of the damage you've done, that scares people. So I think when you ask me why we are going through this moment right now, it's like we are as a society about to put the bottle down Mm -hmm. and we have a few scary minutes when we look at ourselves in the mirror, Mm -hmm. but I would encourage us to take that moment, right? Take inventory of our lives. And then from that point forward, a better beginning will come again.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a great um, metaphor and example. And I think um, something that you said, you know, it starts as simple as the board asking, what are we doing around X topic and why Mm -hmm. are we doing that? Have we defined what our, you know, what good looks like for us, what our values are on whatever the topic is? And then that creates that starting point that then management and the company can work from and create. You know, programs and incentives around to get people to start operating in in those ways, and so it could be as simple as, "What are our data values?" You know, how are we going to use data and and treat it um, with regard to the ultimate purpose and and what the data subjects are, et cetera. I mean, those are some good questions, and if you can put some guidance, um, you know, some principles around that around values, then that people know how to operate. So maybe you know we can get it kind of shift into this is pretty, pretty hardcore engineering stuff. Like if you had that to work with, then, you know, how could you lead your team? Like now we know some of the requirements, non-functional requirements. What are we going to be building here? How are we going to go about this?
1: Exactly. And I feel like I love that you pivoted to the engineering aspect of it because it The best way to action some of these principles is in how you build your products. So when you build personas for how somebody would use this product, make sure you think about who else might want to use this product. Not who else can make us more money, but who else might want to use this product. If you make something more accessible to somebody who's starting a small business in a small town, you have not just made this actionable for them, but for the future employees that Mm -hmm. they hire. The family members of those future employees as well. So when you create new personas from a diversity, inclusivity aspect of house, you are now creating new customers. Uh, Oftentimes, there is also an expectation that the people who use our products in the tech industry, again, to use the example of a high engagement-driven B2C model, you are talking about people with a limited attention span, people who have 10 minutes between meetings or 10 minutes between meals or whatever. That's who you aim at. Why not aim at the person who might be in their 60s or 70s with their first smartphone in somewhere in like Kenya or something, somewhere in South Mm -hmm. Asia or, or somewhere in the rural South in the U.S.? Why not appeal to those people? Because those folks have seen a few changes. Mm-hmm. They have expectations that you may not think about. Why not make them part of your focus group? This is going to achieve multiple goals, David. It's going to, for one thing, it's going to give you some product research for free because these folks are going to be very excited to help you out. Maybe not free, you could pay them some money, but fundamentally you it won't cost you as much because budgets are often tight these days. Mm-hmm. The second thing is you will understand how your product works in real time because fundamentally you only know what you know, but you don't know what you don't know. But the worst thing is, you don't know what you wish you didn't know before so you are now creating a bigger sandbox for yourself and what that means is your product will offer you fewer surprises because one thing big tech hates the most is surprises like we love disrupting the world but <laughs> heaven forbid if somebody disrupt us we get really you know sour about it so i would say when when I, when my team whatever company i happen to work for when my team builds products i, I routinely ask them what does the end customer look like And I tend to think of my dad, like I don't think of my mom because my mom is very tech savvy, but my dad is not. My dad sends me a whole bunch of news, fake news on WhatsApp. So when people ask me, why is there so much fake news on the Internet? I'm like, it's really my dad. He sends me fake news every single day. But (laughs) I can make fun of him gently. And he's probably laughing at this when he hears about this. The reason is we have made it very easy for people to get access to fake news and send them fake news. Right. How do we give people the tools to verify the veracity of the news that comes their way? So when we build personas that are above and beyond what we typically build for, we create more integrity into the platform. So I would say, let's incentivize creating more personas. Let's incentivize creating more diverse journeys. That will build better requirements and that will give engineers better to work with. And that will mean when we do make a mistake, it'll be easier to fix because we knew at the very get-go that our goals were just more than creating more engagement. Mm
0: -hmm. Maybe talk a little more if you've got a couple examples of either companies that you've seen do this well and kind of what some of their keys to success were, um, or, you know, you're involved in a number of kind of groups across the industry that are passionate about about this, um, you know, ethics and values and doing things in this better way. Um, how do how would a company or or a person start on this journey if they want to, um, you know, do it better or do it right? I mean, right is temporal, but um, you know, just some examples that you've seen I think could be helpful.
1: I think a lot of companies have started doing work to make it very easy for their employees to serve the community. So I work for a lot of tech companies, including the one you and I worked at back in the day, where companies make it very easy for you to donate money to charity. So a lot of my charitable giving began when I was working with you back in the day and that company had a direct match. And this process can often be hard because you have to verify that the that the charity you are giving money to is actually legit. You have to confirm that they do Mm -hmm. get the money. You have to make sure that they use the money correctly. Now, most people who work in tech tend to have the money to do some of these things. What they don't have is time. What they don't have is the attention span to do the work. So what a lot of companies do is they onboard charitable giving providers like Benevity, for example. I'm sure there are others that do the right thing as well. And what companies like Benevity do is they will verify that the charities are illegitimate, that they are a 501c3 registered charity that they have decent scores on Charity Navigator, for example. And once all that is done, if I'm going to look up a charity, just let me give you an example called Wildlife SOS. It is one that I directly support. I talked about in my my LinkedIn post. When I look that up, it comes up on its own. So I don't need to come up with an address. I don't need to come up with the right employee code, whatever. All that gets done automatically. And then once I submit my own donation some verification happens at the back end and my donation goes through from my paycheck. And then the company also does a match. So all of this process that is logistically often very difficult to do, I can get done in between meetings during lunch or quite frankly, sometimes during meetings that are a little boring and you've made it very easy for me to do the right thing. So a lot of companies are leaning in because what they are now accomplishing is they are a, giving back to society. They're incentivizing their employees to do the right thing. And it all happens within the confines of the workday. So There is no more for me the excuse of, oh my goodness, life got away from me or I didn't know or that it would not have made a difference. And when I do that, when I give that donation, I can now share that with my internal intranet at my company on Slack or whatever, other people will donate. So now you have created this chain of kindness
0: Mm.
1: at my job with me and my company as being co-equal partners. And I feel like these small things make a big difference because now they have created as part of this culture, this aspect of charitable giving. Mm -hmm. And also given that it's part of my day job now, it's less likely that I'll forget about it. Because what happens is every time I find out that this charity did something awesome, I can put it back in the company's ecosystem and say, hey, my colleague, David Tussing, gave a ton of money to this organization that I support. I should tell David that this organization rescued uh, an animal from euthanasia, or they gave money to an institution overseas that educates uh, minority groups, as an example, right? There's a ton of examples. When people see that the good they do as part of their day job, And it directly benefits another human being or animal someplace else. It creates this culture of giving and, you know, getting, and I Mm -hmm. think companies doing stuff like this is very, very helpful Mm -hmm. because otherwise it's very easy to just be intimidated by the sheer scale of the challenge in front of us. And the way you fix this is by making these small changes across the board. So my advice to companies, to leaders is don't be daunted by the scale of the challenge. Don't ask for a lighter burden, ask for stronger shoulders. And this is one way of building that
0: strength. Yeah, no, that's a great example. And, um, you know, uh, it's pervasive, you know, across a company culture, like you said. And that is the best place to start. And then, you know, shifting into kind of more an engineering zone, um, what are some practical things that engineering leaders or business leaders could also do in their direct sphere to help people learn about um different ways to create products or or make decisions um, around what they're what they're building and why and who it's for. I mean, like just kind of get really tactical for a minute. Like what are some best practices you're seeing? I think that there are some in your book actually, now that I'm making a plug for you, but.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm just gonna give examples here. I would say one way to do this would be to make sure that when you are building a product, uh, if you have a community college in your area or a trade school in your area, or even sort of a, a high school in, in your area, making sure or trying to give those kids an opportunity to give you feedback would be pretty awesome and i would say look for schools not necessarily ones that have the same sort of kind of composition that your schools do like people so for example i live in mountain view california most of the schools in the area have kids whose parents probably work at companies like mine i would say look for a school in tracy california look for a school in bakersfield that does not have that tech representation Mm -hmm. and get feedback from these students it's going to give them the ability to directly understand how tech companies work is going to connect you to a part of California that, uh, frankly, doesn't get as much attention from the tech industry sometimes. And it's also going to create this conversation and connection that should exist between two different groups. One is mm-hmm. sort of the so-called hip tech companies and the so-called more you know rural communities that don't often talk to each other. And, you know, David, when I w- lived in Oregon back in the day, I used to and I still consider myself an Oregonian, in ex- exile. I used to serve as a judge or a coach in the first Lego League of Oregon and we mm-hmm. used to train these kids and build amazing Lego products and they would compete with each other and I as a judge I would often see two kinds of teams one where mom and dad worked at Intel or Nike or any of the big tech companies and these their kids had amazing t-shirts great swag candy logos and they would come into the room with like a big television screen to sort of show how they built the product and those bells and whistles make a difference. I know we're all supposed to be objective, but the judges tended to give these teams more points. That's just the fact of life. And then you would have these small schools from Madras, Oregon or Mm -hmm. from Coos Bay come in Mm -hmm. and they didn't have those resources. And oftentimes they had to pool money together to pay for the gas to come visit Oregon. Mm -hmm. And how do you make sure that these kids get the next opportunity? How do you make sure that the next Steve Jobs or or the next, uh, you know, Bill Gates in these teams got their moment? Because oftentimes, resources or lack of resources either amplify or stifle your life potential. Mm -hmm. So my big cause for the rest of my tech career will be to make sure that when you build your next product, you give these teams, these small schools, the opportunity to participate in the construction process. You pay them money. You use those connections to hire these kids as interns Mm -hmm. and you make sure that this relationship is ongoing, not just when you need a good sort of photograph for a PR campaign. Although that is one sort of benefit (laughs) of doing the right thing but give these kids direct opportunities and make their personas part of your tech spec. Give them visibility into how testing actually happens and make them part of your ongoing conversations. And that's what's going to be a big focus for me. I talk about this some in the book, but that's the context of privacy. But I think this is a larger engineering Mm -hmm. product opportunity as well.
0: Mm -hmm. No, that's a great, um, great example. Maybe kind of the last thing, you're a very optimistic person, which I appreciate. What are some of the things that are really giving you hope and optimism about the future of the, the big tech industry and, you know, what you're starting to see change um, around the world. Um, but, but, you know, here in the U.S. or, or international, I think there's a lot of um, it had been so Silicon Valley oriented for so long. I think there's starting to be a proliferation of, of tech across the world in, in new and great ways. And so maybe just talk a little about what's giving you optimism for the future of technology.
1: Yeah, so let me give you an example that goes back to the 1950s. So I don't know how many engineers come on your show and talk about uh, the 1950s and the Korean Peninsula, but let's make a start here. (laughs) So in the 1950s, when the Korean War was dragging on towards this armistice, uh, the question was being raised as to, okay, what is the future going to look like? And we had a State Department official named Dean Rusk who drew a line through the 38th parallel and said, North Korea here, South Korea here. Now, historically, and this is a complicated topic, but historically, the divisions in the, in the Korean peninsula were east-west, where the western Korean peninsula was closer to China in terms of philosophy, where it was more socialist. Uh, sorry, the western part and the eastern part was more Japan-affiliated, affiliated, more capitalist in nature. So it was somewhat of a historical problem to sort of draw the line that way. But South Korea basically said, we don't have as many resources. We have been... We have been brought out as a country in the middle of the Cold War. And we are going to invest in technology. We're going to make sure our population is well-trained. We invest in factories. And it was a tough 1960s and 1970s for them. But look what South Korea has done today. In 2002, they hosted the World Cup. And Incheon Airport is sort of the pride and joy. It's an amazing airport, very tech savvy. Uh, They host some of the finest companies in the world that are homegrown Korean companies, as well as U.S. and other Western companies. So big tech has the potential to create these cultural and societal successes. And I use South Korea as an example. I could have used Japan. I could have used any other country any other country in the world. I'm seeing a lot of tech jobs go into rural Oregon in the Midwest where we have the Silicon Prairie. Big tech has the potential to create the resources that A, creates amazing products, that creates a more upskill population, and that creates new jobs and fundamentally redefines how society actually works. Now, it also creates other challenges like how's Housing costs go up, like in Portland, Oregon, people blame the tech industry for driving up (laughs) housing prices. So it's not all honey and lemon, honey and chocolates, but big tech has this potential to fundamentally reshape societies. And we have the ability to look for workers, create jobs, create factories in parts of the country that haven't seen as much growth. So I'm thinking Kansas City, Missouri, I'm thinking Prineville, Oregon, Mm -hmm. Elko, Nevada, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, places in the country that A, have the talent, B, have the aspiration, C, have the necessity, and B, quite frankly, are unnecessarily distant from us right now. And I think big tech can do that. Remember, big tech is one of the few sectors that has been able to make these amazing pivots. I'm talking about Intel going from memory to processing power. I'm talking about Microsoft going from just on-prem to enterprise cloud-based software. I'm talking about the phone being thought of as a device to just call people to being the biggest carrier of data. I remember when I was an intern at Sprint in 2002, the belief was landline is the way to go. And now I don't know how many people have landlines, <laughs> right? Now <but> the <laughs> cell phone has fundamentally become an instrument Not just for voice, but for data as well. Mm -hmm. Big tech can make these pivots in a way that will make us a ton more money, create a ton more jobs, but in a way that brings the rest of society with us. I would challenge any other sector to present that kind of a scale and that kind of potential. I don't think that exists. So we have not just the responsibility, but the opportunity to do the right thing. And I've given examples from my own career. I was... I did my undergrad in a small school in Missouri with 6,000 students in there and 10,000 people in that town. And today I work for Google, Netflix, Uber, Nike, right? It is possible. It gets better and it's possible. And I'm an optimist because every day in my life is evidence that somebody with average intelligence who speaks really fast can do amazing things. So if I can do it, so can you. And if you need more evidence, just talk to me and I'll find a way for you to get to your potential and even beyond. And maybe we'll do it together because I have job job openings in my team right now as well. So I got to put a plug in for that as well.
0: Love it. Man. Way to finish strong. Um, anything else you want to add? That's definitely a mic drop moment there, that was a good, good, strong finish. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Well, I want to end with uh, David. Thank you for your friendship, for your support, for your kindness. I have been the undeserved recipient of many just gestures from you, including this invitation. I love the tradition. I love the community that you've built here. And I love the fact that it creates a forum for people to not just talk about tech or talk about society, but talk about the two of them as one cohesive whole. Hmm. And I love the sense of mission, the opportunity. And I think we should make this a beginning of a relationship and make this part of our ongoing sort of conversation. And I just love the fact that you've done this and you've given me this platform on this beautiful Friday. I'm grateful for that. Here's it. to family, to friendship, to faith and everything that makes possible.
0: Yes. Thank you so much, Nishant. This was a wonderful day and I look forward to more chats in the future. Fantastic. Thank you. Big thanks to George Fox Digital for producing this podcast. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you stream from. And if you want to dig in more to this stuff or see what else George Fox Community is talking about, check out georgefox.edu forward slash talks or by searching on YouTube for George Fox Talks.